0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome here again. We're going to look at Matthew 19. We're going to just continue on in the next verses, but I thought I should at least let you know that I do know that it's Christmas Eve. And uh, in some churches, you might expect a Christmas message, something on the coming of Jesus to earth and the prophecies fulfilled that Will just read for us or... Maybe something on the virgin birth or the incarnation of the Son of God, and sometimes we do that. Uh, we always do that for our Christmas banquet uh, every year that we've done that, but typically, you know, as you know, we continue just verse by verse working through a book of scripture and if if there's not a Christmas message burning on my heart, which i don't even know what that would exactly look like um, then uh, and if the next scripture doesn't maybe just end up being totally awkward so that it doesn't fit at all with the occasion, then we just continue with our regular routine. And I, I think we'll find that what we're going to look at today fits at least decently with, um, with the season and the day that it is. And so with that, we're going to look at Matthew 19, verses 27 to 30. And most of you have been here the last few weeks, and so you know the context. The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking in verse 16, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And I'll try to avoid the temptation this morning to get into all the intricacies of Jesus' response. We've looked at that. But in short, Jesus managed to get the, to, the, to the heart of the issue and to get to the, the young man's heart and what, what we've seen is that the young man loved his possessions more than Jesus Christ. He loved his possessions too much. And Jesus exposed the idol of his heart when, if you look at verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Well, the man didn't recognize the value of eternal life. He didn't recognize the wealth of knowing God through Jesus Christ. He didn't recognize the danger to his soul that he was headed for hell. And he doesn't get that. He's lost. He's blind. And he traded treasure in heaven forever. He traded eternal life and eternal joy in the presence of Christ and the Father for what he had on earth, for what he had in his possessions, which was only temporary in this life. And so in verse 22, the young man, when he heard this, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In the words of Matthew 16:26, "The young man forfeit his soul. He could have had life, he could have had God as his reward, but he exchanged it for his possessions. And last week, we saw that it was only the grace of God that can make us willing to give up our lives to live for Jesus' sake. Saving grace makes us see that following Jesus is worth the cost, whatever it is, that we have to pay in this world. Now, this time of year, we often give gifts for one another. And uh, it might seem strange then, as we kind of come into this passage, to think about giving up our possessions to follow Jesus Christ. But what our, our text should do for us today is it should, it should really lift our eyes above this world and what we have now in this world and, and really lift our eyes above what we might get tomorrow as gifts to what we have now in our Lord Jesus Christ and what we're going to have in the world to come. Now, the reason that we give gifts at, the, at this time of year, and, and maybe some of you kids especially are excited about the gifts that you're going to get. The reason that we give gifts this time of year, and I'm just going to admit as we do this, I, I, I didn't do a deep dive into the historical um, study of, of Christian gift giving at Christmas time. But at least as far as I understand it, we, the reason that we give gifts to one another at Christmas time is in memory of the ultimate gift that we have in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think about the wise men from the East, you know, not three kings as we often sing, but these wise men had three gifts and there was likely a large group of them and and they came and in Matthew chapter 2, sometime after Jesus was born, Matthew 2.11 says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they gave him, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And those gifts would have provided for the family when shortly after that they fled to Egypt to avoid Herod's massacre. And so there's a sense in which we give gifts to God as an act of worship. And what we give to the church to provide for the ministry of the church is part of our worship. We worship God for what he's done for us. And our worship is always in response to the gift of God, which always precedes our worship. He has given us the gift of salvation, and now we give of what He's given us in worship to Him. In in John 4.10, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Jesus himself is the gift of God. And he gives the living water of salvation. In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it's a a great memory verse for us. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith is a gift. A gift from God to all who receive it. It's a gift from the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit working together in perfect harmony to save mankind. It's a gift from God to sinful man. It's a a gracious, merciful gift to those who do not and cannot deserve it. See, the gift of salvation is the greatest gift ever given. And it's a multifaceted gift like a diamond with many sides. From one side, it's a gift from the Father to His Son. The Father has chosen And given his son a bride, the church. And so we are a beautiful, adorning uh, bride to Jesus Christ, our husband who gave himself for us. From another side, salvation is a gift to us, a gift from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a gift that saves us from the wrath of God, which is hell which is the worst thing that could befall anyone. And so salvation saves us from the worst destiny imaginable. And it's also a gift that gives us the best thing imaginable. That unites us with God so that we become his own dear children and he is our father. The gift of salvation is a gift of God in that he gives us his son and he gives us eternal life. But also it's a gift of God in this sense. He gives us himself. God is the gift of salvation, which is the greatest thing that could be given. God can give nothing better than himself, and that's exactly what he has given us in our salvation. And so when we think about gifts at this time of year, another thing that I often think about is the, the, um, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, which in that text, it alludes to Psalm 68, and in Psalm 68, The Messiah or whoever is referenced in Psalm 68 is, is this conquering king. And usually the conquering king would receive gifts from his conquered enemies. And that's how Psalm 68 goes. But when Paul alludes to it in Isaiah or in Ephesians 4 verse 8, he changes the wording. And instead of receiving gifts from men, it pictures Jesus there as giving gifts to men. And so Jesus conquers. And then he gives. <coughs> Sorry about that. Wow, I just, I thought, I was, I was very hopeful. I, was, I thought, I told the guys this morning when we prayed, I said, you know, I, I think it's going to be no problem, but I, I never really know until I start yelling. So um, I guess uh, it's going to be a problem here again. <clears throat> Well, Jesus as the conquering king who gives gifts to men, what did he give? And according to Ephesians chapter 4, he gave gifted people to build up his church, starting with the apostles and the prophets who wrote the New Testament, and then all believers who minister to one another. And so Jesus is both the gift and the giver of the gift. And we give gifts to remind ourselves of this gift-giving example that God has set for us. And it's good for us to do so. I think it's a good thing for us to give and receive gifts. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful blessing. <coughs> my brother's offering me a fisherman's friend, but I think, uh, I think that'll just be actually worse than, because uh, then you'll hear it kind of clinking around in my mouth the whole time. So, um, <coughs> We're going to do this. We're going to get through it. I'll try to, I'll try to maybe talk a little different. It's not, it's not easy for me to do. But it's a wonderful thing to give and receive gifts. And I'm sure that, that you kids are really looking forward to that. But as we've seen in Matthew 19, 16 to 26, we have to be careful as followers of Jesus Christ not to get caught up with the things of the world. Right, First John 2 verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Matthew 13 22 warns that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so we've seen the last few weeks again that Jesus must be number one in our lives and hearts, and he will not share his glory with another. We cannot serve God and mammon. On the other hand, we're not called, as the rich man was, to sell all of our possessions and give to the poor. We are to lay up treasures in heaven, but not necessarily by selling everything on earth. 1 Timothy 6:17 to 19. And why don't why don't you guys turn there as we kind of look at this? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6:17 It says, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, And so we're free to enjoy the good things that God gives us. And they are good. And he gives us to them, he he gives us these things to enjoy, but they must never be our God. Our treasure and our hearts must be in heaven. And our text today teaches us to hold our, our earthly things loosely and to look forward to our treasure in heaven. The rich young ruler, he would not let go of his earthly possessions. And our text gives us the example of the disciples who maybe didn't sell everything to give to the poor, but they did leave what they had to follow Jesus Christ. And so go back to Matthew and let's read our text. (coughs) Turn around and cough and pray. All right, we're in Matthew 19. We're going to start reading at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think it's appropriate to remind ourselves on the day before Christmas of our reward. And to remind ourselves that our reward is not tomorrow as fun as it is to give and receive gifts, but our reward comes when Jesus returns. And so it's not the celebration of the first coming that should be first in our hearts. It's not Christmas that should be first in our hearts, but it's the, really the anticipation of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this text with the, the simplest outline I think possible. We're going to see in verse 27 the question about reward. Then we'll see the apostles' reward in verse 28. Verse 29, everyone's reward. And then in verse 30, there's a warning about reward. And so first of all, the question about reward in verse 27. Peter was watching this exchange with the rich young man and a a few things stuck out to him. In verse 21, treasure in heaven for leaving possessions and following Jesus Maybe even this idea of entering the kingdom. And so in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Peter speaking for the whole group as he often does in verse 28, it says, Jesus said to them, not just to Peter. Peter's words have a strong emphasis on we. Um, and the word us there. There's there's no, really no way to bring this out in the English translation. But right at the beginning of Peter's question is the word we in the Greek text, and it's there for emphasis. And then at the end of the sentence, the end of his question is the word us. What then will be to us? And in, in the Greek text, in, in the beginning and the end, those are the, the positions where you want to put words to emphasize something. And even the word we is not necessary. And so there's this kind of Emphasis and bracketing on we and us. And it's almost a double emphasis then. What, what's in it for us? What are we going to get? You know, Peter's emphasizing the fact that they didn't, they didn't go away. Unlike maybe the rich young ruler, they didn't go away. They followed Jesus, and he's asking what's in it for them. And he's really separating the 12 then from all other people, and especially from this rich young man. Now, there's two ways that people take this question. One way is to think of it as an unrighteous question. D.A. Carson thinks Peter is thinking of deserving or earning God's favor, and he uses the word mercenary to describe it. To be mercenary means to be primarily concerned about making money rather than ethical concerns. In other words, Peter's just All about what's in it for them, and he's really sinfully here thinking about reward. Another commentator talking about Peter says, He claims that, unlike the young man, they have left everything and followed Jesus. That is a delusion of grandeur, for their ambition for power and glory is intact. Now, on the other side of this, many commentators note that the Lord does not rebuke Peter. And the disciples here, they're, they're not rebuked, and he gives them a plain answer. Sometimes they see with this an uncertainty in Peter here, kind of a, a wondering, what are we gonna have? As if he said, you know, we've left everything, haven't we? Or, or what, has, has what is impossible happened in our case, and what does our future hold? (laughs) It's almost worse than, uh, what was that thing going around, Pertusis or whatever that was, remember that? Um, well, I'm hesitant to, um, to give Peter a hard time on this question. You know, I'm going to see him in heaven one day, and so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm weary of that. Um, but but I, I, you know, I, I, think there, I think that we know and we've seen already that there's nothing necessarily sinful about looking forward to reward in heaven. Now, you can have the wrong idea of it. You can have the wrong view of it where, you, where, you, where you're in competition with other believers. And the Lord does warn about that in verse 30. And we're going to see that in verse 30 when he says, many who are first will be last and the last first. And the parable in chapter 20 that we'll look at next week is going to help us interpret that little proverb there. But it's a warning for those who think that they're first. And it's a reminder, again, that we must take the lowest place and be last here in this world like a child. And so there's at least a warning against a mercenary attitude, but there's nothing necessarily sinful in asking about or thinking about our eternal reward. And Scripture often even commands us to do that. The young man was promised treasure in heaven, and Peter wonders what that's going to look like for them. Now, Peter and the twelve have followed Jesus for a couple of years by this point, and Peter says, we've left everything which, which is true, but they have not sold everything, and so far as we know, they have not given to the poor, at least not all of their things. And in Matthew 8 and verse 14, we remember we read about Peter's house in Capernaum. He continued to own that house, and throughout their time in Galilee, the group had ready access to a boat that the twelve could travel on, probably Peter's boat. When Jesus died and rose again, before he met them on the mountain in Galilee, Peter went fishing. You remember that? In John 21, in verse 3, Peter said to the disciples, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And then they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. And so Peter continued to own a boat, but they had left it in Galilee, and they followed Jesus. Now, Peter asked about the reward for doing so. What, what's the What's the reward for leaving everything and following you? And that then brings us to number two in our outline. We're going to see the apostles' reward in verse 28. The apostles' reward. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus divides the reward into two parts. First, where where we're at here, we're going to see the reward for the 12. And then secondly, we're going to see the reward for everyone in verse 29. Verse 28 is an important verse in regards to eschatology. Uh, Eschatology is the study of the end times. The eschatos is end or last in Greek. And so eschatology, the study of the end times, the last times. This is one of those truly statements, truly I say to you, Jesus says. We're not to ignore this verse. What Jesus says here when he when he says truly I say to you, it's, it's highlighting a very important statement of our Lord. And so what Jesus says here is important, but many commentators ignore it, or they don't even try to understand it because it doesn't fit in their eschatological system. John MacArthur mentioned one such commentator who said, quote, Now we have to wonder what our Lord meant by the 12 tribes of Israel, end quote. You know, what do you, I don't know, I like I look at that and I read the 12 tribes of Israel and I think, well, I think that probably means the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, I think it's only confusing what the Lord means by the 12 tribes of Israel if it doesn't fit your eschatological system or if you don't recognize a place for Israel in the future kingdom. The 12 tribes of Israel is the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think if you think about it like this, what would Peter have understood? I think Peter would have understood the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you asked Matthew, what do you understand by the 12 tribes of Israel? I think he would have said the 12 tribes of Israel, like, you know, the the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was renamed Israel, who had 12 sons, and then they became 12 tribes. Now, Matthew is... Um, often will apply Old Testament promises to the church, but he also is very careful to distinguish between Israel and the church in his book. And so we've already seen that if Matthew wants to say church, he knows the word for that as well. And so I think we should be careful as well to distinguish between Israel and the church. Israel is Israel and the church is the church. And in the Old Testament, Israel was the people of God. And in the New Testament, the church is the people of God. But we still recognize the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that they have a significance in God's future plans. And if you turn over to Romans 11, we might as well just do that right away here. Romans 11 explains the future salvation of Israel. You could just almost read it for yourself and you'll see it there. But at the end of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 11, <clears throat> Thank you, Daryl. Yeah. Romans 11, Paul explains in verse 28 the dual status of Israel, kind of the, how do we understand Israel right now? And, And look at 1128. It says, as regards the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And Paul explains further in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's not going to change his plan or modify his promises. And he he promised Israel salvation and one day the whole nation will be saved. And then in the kingdom, in the millennium, Israel will have a place of prominence and the Messiah is going to reign from Israel over the whole earth. We read some of those promises already this morning in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And they're reiterated in the New Testament in the book of Luke. But look at our text again. Matthew, go back there, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world. Now if you have a legacy standard Bible, it says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration." And so we've got in the new world, in the regeneration. If you have the ESV and it says in the new world, you'll notice there's a footnote there. And beside that footnote, it says um, that the Greek says in the regeneration. Now, this word was used one other time in the New Testament in Titus 3.5. Titus 3.4 says, When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So in Titus, the same word is used and it's speaking about personal regeneration, salvation. God is saving us, making us new creatures in Christ. Regeneration is the new birth in Titus. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But our text in Matthew 19, it's not speaking about personal regeneration, but more of what we might think of as a cosmic regeneration, the renewal of the earth during the millennial reign of Christ. And that's why I think the ESV kind of helps us understand the sense of it when they translate it, the new world. And so we're talking about the new world. What's Peter's reward? Well, it, it's going to happen in the new world when the earth is renewed. And, and to kind of see this in the Old Testament, I want you to turn to Isaiah eleven. Isaiah eleven. Where are we going to start here? Let's start in verse. Let's just start in verse one here. Follow along with me. <clears throat> there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, who's, who's Jesse? Well, Jesse, you remember, is David's father, King David's father. And so there's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now, if you don't know who this is talking about, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be this descendant of David and he's going to come. And one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he's going to kill the wicked. Verse five, the righteousness shall be the, the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And then look what's going to happen. This is this cosmic renewal in verses six to nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. You know, if you had a a little child leading a a lion and a wolf and a leopard, I think as parents you'd be kind of freaked out, right? Little little baby just kind of walking and a leopard following it behind. But in this situation, this is a, a nice little scene that we've got here. In verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Again, yikes. And the wean child shall put his hand in the adder's, or on the adder's den. And in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so there's some kind of a, a renewal of the earth happening that Isaiah is describing. And there's there's peace among the animal kingdom, and between animals and humans. And there's no danger for the people. In fact, the knowledge of the Lord has covered the earth. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, again, this is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that maybe reminds us of the glorious throne that we see in our text. And we've got people from the the nations coming to uh, speak to the Messiah. Again, verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from um, Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so there's going to be a regathering of Israel um, brought back to the nation. And look at verse 13 now. It says, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Ephraim was another name for Israel. And so there's going to be no jealousy in Ephraim And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Remember in the former times there was the north and the southern kingdom. There's Judah and there's Israel. There's Ephraim and there's Judah. And they were at war with each other. They harassed one another. But that's not going to happen anymore at this time. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with its with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead the people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of That remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. Now, in those last few verses, so there's there's peace in Israel at this time between Judah and Ephraim. The the, the tribes are are kind of again united under one leader, the Messiah. But notice in those last few verses that we read, there's still some kind of war going on. There's still some kind of conquering of, of the Philistines and there's some judgment that's happening in the world, and, and what I wanna, want, want you to note from that is that this is different than the eternal state, because there seems to be still some measure of war and judgment. And so what Isaiah is talking about here is the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. Now, that's what he calls the regeneration. So it's going to be a a time of prosperity that we've never seen before on the earth, and and yet it's something short of the eternal state. The world is brought under subjection under Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of King David, who rules the world uh, from Jerusalem. Now, this word from our text, we're going to go to Isaiah 65, but that word regeneration was used by Philo. He was a Jew before Jesus' time, and he used that word regeneration to to describe the earth after the flood. That word was also used by another uh, Jewish historian, Josephus, (coughs) to describe the return to Babylon after the exile, but but mostly, this word was used with a more dramatic renewal kind of sense, like we just saw in Isaiah 11. But also now, go to Isaiah 65, and we'll start in verse 17. Isaiah 65:17. It says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out His days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. Now let me just stop there. So there's gonna be this new heaven and new earth. This is the regeneration, the same time. But notice here that that no more is a child gonna die. And in verse 20, the young man shall die a hundred years old. Now, what what how what how old would you call a young man today? You know, young man, what, like 20 years old, or maybe, sometimes maybe call a 13-year-old, hey, young man. But when I see a 100-year-old man, now, I, unless I'm teasing him, I don't say young man to that guy. You know, I think that guy's like, you know, as my one friend said, he's got a foot in each, uh, you know, in, in well, how did he say that? Do you remember that, Jeremy? Said like a foot in both in the grave or something like that. Anyways. We, let's just uh, let's just leave that alone. That's why I don't usually talk stuff that's not in my notes, right? But um, <clears throat> the young man is going to be 100 years old and the sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. And I think the idea there, and some translations even add the word they shall be thought accursed. And the idea is if somebody dies at 100 years old, you're going to think, I wonder what that sinner did to deserve that. Like that he was... He was almost like struck down for his sin. And so this is something very much unlike what we experience now, and yet we know that in the eternal state, nobody's going to die. And so something, again, is different than the eternal state. It's not quite the eternal state, and yet it's not what we're in now. This is the millennial kingdom. This is the regeneration that Jesus is speaking about. And if you look at verse 21 then, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of a tree, for like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. So how long does a tree live? Well, a lot longer than we do now. But in that time, the people are going to live a very long time. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. And so even children are being born in this time. For they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And here it is again. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And again, we see a remarkable renewal, unlike anything that we know now, but it is not yet the eternal state. And this is the regeneration that our text speaks of. And so if you go back to Matthew 19, Peter's wondering about his reward. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, or in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and so the regeneration corresponds to the time when the Son sits on his throne. Now, right now today, Jesus is at the at the father's right hand on his father's throne. but in our text, this is his throne, his glorious throne, this is Jesus' throne. And this happens not now, this happens in the regeneration. So when Jesus returns, this is when this is going to happen. And his glorious throne then is the throne of David, which we read about in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 in our scripture reading this morning. But this throne of David, from which the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is going to rule over the world. And again, it's going to be a time of tremendous prosperity and peace and worship of the whole world in Jerusalem. Psalm chapter 2 speaks about this as well, speaks about the sun, and it says this, starting in verse 6. Yahweh is speaking at first, and he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Again, Zion is Israel, is the, the nation of Israel, um, spiritual Israel, if we want to think about it that way. But I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and so now the Messiah speaking, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so we get this picture of the Son of God coming to earth and he's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to break them with a rod of iron. He's going to rule over this world. And all of this again happens when Jesus returns the second time. He's going to come and, and we're going to be with him. We're, those who have died in Christ and even those who have been raptured before this, we're going to return with him during the tribulation time. And he's going to come and he's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to conquer the nations and he's going to rule over this world for a thousand years. And it's going to be like a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we can see this also in the New Testament if you go to Revelation uh, chapter 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. This is the return of Christ, the the final return of Christ after after everything in the tribulation is described there. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, Here's Psalm 2. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have this picture of the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. And there's a great massacre on the earth. Verse 20, the beast is captured with the false prophet, and they're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21, the rest that were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne, and the birds, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so again, there's a great massacre and conquering of the world when jesus returns and then in chapter 20 then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer Until the thousand years were ended, and after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones. Now, note the multiple thrones, and remember our text the disciples are going to sit on thrones. I saw thrones, and seated on them were those from whom the authority to judge was committed, and I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so there's a, a, a resurrection at this time. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That would be the sinful dead. They're not resurrected until later on in chapter 20. Verse 5 ends, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, what Jesus is saying to Peter is that when he comes, when Jesus comes to rule the nations, they also will reign with him. And we also, according to Revelation 20, all of those who are resurrected at that time, which includes us, we also are going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. But Peter and the 11 are going to have special roles judging Israel. And so if you go back and look at our text one more time, this is the Apostles' reward, verse 29. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, some interpreters here think that judging involves some kind of end time judgment of Israel. Some role in the final judgment. And, and I just don't think that that fits. You know, first of all, there's this present participle judging. There's an ongoing continuous sense here. There's a, a continuing role that's happening. It's not a one-time judgment of unbelieving Israel, okay, if you can follow me there. It's more like when we talk about judging here, sitting on thrones and judging, it's more like the judges before Samuel who were rulers in Israel. And so the the reward here is that the, the 12 are going to sit on thrones and they're going to rule with Christ in the millennium. And the other reason why I just don't think this idea of judging Israel fits, like, how would this be Peter's reward? Okay, think about that. Hey, Jesus, what are we going to have for giving up everything? Well, you get to judge all the sinners that rejected you and 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 uh, resisted you. Well, like, you know, maybe, like, I don't know, Are you? would you be excited about that? Like, I, I don't, I, that doesn't really, like, bless my heart. You know, I think the idea of ruling with Christ, that's going to be an awesome thing. And so to see this as some kind of role in judging unbelieving Israel, I just think is just a really bad view. Reigning over Israel and the world with Christ is a reward. Judging, again, not so much. And so Peter says, what are we going to have? And Jesus replies, you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel during the millennial reign when I also sit on my throne. But the rest of Matthew's readers now, including us, we're not among the twelve. And so, you know, the, the question then comes for us, well, what about, what about us? Like, that's great for Peter, that's great for Matthew, that's great for Thomas, but what, like, what's going to happen for the rest of us? And that's where Matthew and Jesus kind of open this up and broaden this out. There's only twelve apostles, so what about the rest of Jesus' disciples who leave the world behind to follow Christ. And that's what we turn to now in verse 29. And I called this everyone's reward. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now there's two categories of things here. There's brothers sisters, fathers, mothers, children. And that represents three generations if you think about it that way. There's your, there's your parents, there's your siblings, and then there's your children. And so you've got kind of the three generations with you in the middle. And that's really your family. And family in the ancient Near East, that was really number one. And it was ingrained into the people that in that culture that you never leave your family. Remember when the prodigal son asked for his inheritance early? And he left and uh, left his father and, and that was an outrageous and shameful thing. Now, the other category of, of things here that, that might be left for Jesus' namesake is houses and lands, or that word could also mean farms. And houses both would include both the family and the property. It's, it's the house and the family, the household. And so here we have then material possessions. And these are left for my namesake, to serve the Lord and honor his name and to make him known. When these are left, there is a reward for that. Now, I wanted to read from you from a, a book I have here. This is Kenneth Bailey. And he's working out of the book of Luke on the same passage in the parallel context here. But he's, you know, the, the idea of this book is he kind of at least lived in the the Near East, and so he kind of understands the culture there very well. And here's what he says about this. He's kind of comparing between the, the old obedience of the law and the new obedience of following Jesus Christ. Remember, these commandments that I give to you in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's working from Luke, the parallel passage in Luke, and listen to what he says here. He says, In the old obedience... The faithful were told not to steal another's property. In the new obedience, one's own property may have to be left behind. In the old obedience, one was told to leave the neighbor's wife alone. In the new obedience, the disciple may be required to leave his own wife alone. Now, this is the parallel in Luke, which also includes among the list of people there a wife. I'll continue on. In the old obedience, the faithful were to honor father and mother, which of course popularly understood meant and still means to stay home and take care of them until they die and are respectfully buried. In the new obedience, the disciple may have to leave them in response to a higher loyalty. It is nearly impossible to communicate what all of this means in our Middle Eastern context. The two unassailable loyalties that any Middle Easterner is almost required to consider more important than life itself are family and the village home. When Jesus puts both of these in one list and then demands a loyalty (coughs) that supersedes them both, he is requiring that which is truly impossible to the Middle Easterner, given the pressures of his culture. The Ten Commandments he can manage, but this is too much. Only with God are such things possible. And then he says this, Surely the shock of the passage cuts deeply into the presuppositions of any culture. Our point is that this shock is felt all the more intensely in a traditional culture where these particular values are supreme. And so I think that helps us to kind of understand what what these people and, and the impossibility of this, and, and this is what Jesus is calling us again to be willing to leave for his name's sake. Leaving these things behind is hard, even impossible, but again, God makes us willing in salvation. But what we receive in the millennium, and this is the good news for us here, this is what we want to consider today what we receive in the millennium after that into the eternal state is. As Jesus says in our passage, a hundred times as much will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so we're going to receive a hundred times as much in the millennium. We're going to have a new family in heaven and we're going to enjoy the good things that God has created in this world. And we're going to do so without sin and without. Idolatry. And so even as we enjoy the good things, God is going to be our ultimate good. And we're going to enjoy everything then without competition between it and God. <coughs> when Jesus talks about eternal life there, again, that, that's that whole idea of knowing God as our good and our refuge and our strength. And so we will not only receive a hundredfold, but we will also inherit eternal life. God will be our God, and we will be his people. The parallel passage in Mark adds that we will receive a hundredfold even now in this time, but it adds with it that also with that will we receive persecutions. But Matthew just focuses on the eternal. And I think what we draw from this is that God is no man's debtor. And so whatever we leave for him or whatever we lose for him, it will be rewarded both now and in eternity God blesses his servants even when they pay the cost of living for Jesus sake and so reward in heaven it's not just for the apostles it's again for everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake and then Jesus introduces a proverb as a promise and a warning and this is then number four I wish I could say more about the, the joys and, and enjoyments of heaven, but we know that a hundredfold and that God is going to be there with us, that that, that is going to be truly an amazing time, really beyond description. But then Jesus gives a, a little warning, a little promise and warning kind of mixed. I called it here the warning about reward in verse 30. Many who are, la- are first will be last and the last first. Now, I'm not going to say much about this today because we're going to continue to, to look at this in chapter 20. Jesus' answer doesn't stop at the end of chapter 19, verse 30. It continues on in the parable in chapter 20. But many will be first. Many who are first will be last and the last first. If you, if you jump down to 20 and verse 16, look at what it says there. It says, so the last will be first and the first last. Now, there's two ways to kind of understand this, and, and I believe Jesus intends both of them here, okay? The first two are last. In one sense, this is speaking about the rich young ruler. You know, the, you think about the rich young ruler. He has it all now, right? He has every every Christmas present he wants. He, he's he got it lined up under the tree. He's rich. He's young. He's got his house. He's got his family. He's maybe popular and respectable, The the rich young ruler has what the world has to offer. And so in a sense, he's first now. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the holy angels come with him, and he sits on his glorious throne, and he deals out rewards and punishment, this man who would not give up his stuff for Jesus' sake, he's going to lose everything. And instead of being first now, he's going to be last. And he's going to be in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This young man is going to be in hell in the end. But the twelve and everyone who gives up whatever they give up for Jesus' sake to serve him in this age, there may be last now. They've, they've given up these things now, but then they will be first. We will be first. And we will be rewarded a hundredfold and we'll have eternal life and enjoy God forever in heaven. That's the one side, the one way to take this. But the other way to see this is to see Peter and the 12 as thinking that they are the last first, if you can kind of follow that. They're the last first and and, and they're maybe starting to think of themselves as better than others. And they're now the greatest In the kingdom, remember in chapter 18, there was that argument about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Matthew tells us that question in chapter 18 and verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so we got the apostles now thinking about themselves as, as being the greatest. And they're starting to think in terms of, of status and, and positioning and power. And they begin to exalt themselves above others. And if they do that, there's a warning here from the Lord that they also will be last. Not in the sense that they're going to go to hell, but others who who took the lowly road and others who carried the cross and others who seemed insignificant in this age, they will be exalted. And this is what we call then the eschatological reversal. And we're going to look at it more next time when we look at the parable in chapter 20. And so tomorrow is Christmas day and many of us are going to receive gifts of one type or another, but let's not lose sight of eternity and the kingdom of God. Let's not lose sight of our great God who gives us every good thing to enjoy and who is himself our exceedingly great reward. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for our time again in your word and what a blessing it is for us to be able to, Look at your word. Thank you for uh, helping my throat as much as, as you did, Lord. And, and we just pray that, that these realities would really hit us, Lord. Help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to look forward, not to the things of this world, but, but even more so to the, the reward in the kingdom, to that time when we're going to spend with you, when you sit on your glorious throne. And the lion and the wolf and the, the, the lion's going to eat grass and, and we're going to be with you and, and rule this world the way that you originally intended, Father. We look forward to that day. And until then, Father, help us to set our sights and lay up our treasures in heaven and to glorify you with how we use the things of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.